Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Saturday, April 1st. The biggest storyline everyone in the tennis world is talking about coming off of Friday at the 2023 Miami Open is the thrilling three-set result we saw unfold between Yannick Sinner and Carlos Alcaraz. We enjoyed that match so much here at Crack Rackets that we decided to dedicate it its own mini break podcast episode to break down the match in all of its glory. Of course, on today's show, we also plan on previewing what promises to be two very exciting Miami Open singles finals. And joining us on today's show to help us do all of that is a man you all know best as a full-time vlogger coming off of his experience at the 2023 Miami Open. (laughs) Simply put, all his rider says is bring me a fancy cup of coffee. Of course, you may also know him as host of Monday Match Analysis, host of 3A Tennis Show, a multi-time Cracked Rackets contributor and dear friend of the podcast. Welcome back to the show, our friend Gil Gross. Gil, welcome back. How are you doing today? Well, you have permission to punch me in the face if I ever actually become a full-time vlogger because (laughs) nobody wants that. Nobody. I feel silly enough doing it once every two years, walking around a tennis tournament with a phone in my face, narrating my entire (laughs) life. So I don't need any more of that than I already have. What's more awkward, going back and doing the edits and doing the voiceover or walking around while people are staring at you being like, what is he doing with his phone right now? No, it's totally okay. I'll, I'll tell you what. So <laughs> behind the when look, you're doing behind, behind the, the vlog, here. <laughs> behind the vlog. And, and yeah, so we're going to get we're going to get into it here. Um, you have to you know, I want to walk around the grounds and my my idea when I do these things all the time is uh, to do a do a little time lapse to kind of show a lot in a short amount of time. So I will always kind of make my camera facing forward and I'll walk around and it'll be like a 10 minute video where I'm literally just walking all around the grounds. And what I thought was that it would be less awkward if I didn't hold my camera up at the level of my eyes. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, Because, you know, then people would be looking at me and they'd be like, what are you doing? Why are you filming? (laughs) So I'm like, I'm just going to hold it kind of subtly at, I I would say, my belly button. Right. Okay. And walk around. And then I'm I'm going over the footage and I'm like, okay, this was maybe less awkward for me. But from the viewer's standpoint, (laughs) it's terribly awkward. You're looking, you know, because you're you're just at a point of view that's very uncomfortable. It's like you're you're a seven year old all over again, <laughs> and you're like at everybody's waist level. It very very. So these are the things that you have to to then you know learn and, and experience. So maybe next time, I think I should invest in like a GoPro, and that way I can walk around and the camera can be at a decent height uh, without me having to like hold hold it up all the time. And uh, that's where I'm at. So two things off of that. 
A, you're absolutely wrong. There's not enough Gilgros belly button footage in our lives, and I'm very excited to have more of it. And really, everyone should go enjoy the vlog because you encapture the full tennis attending experience, not just the matches you were watching, not just analysis from the press room, but of course, you know, the food you're exploring, the culture you're having the opportunity to enjoy while in Miami. Excuse me, the vlog was exceptional even despite the belly button level footage. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just get a hat attachment. Like wear a GoPro on top of a hat, walk around with it. You're like one of those automated cars that is constantly taking footage of everything around it. Um, look, it's, you, you know what to work on. You, you throw it on the drawing board. It's number one for you. But more broadly, the reason I wanted to start there is you did have that experience to be on the grounds. And, you know, you're someone who has obviously been fortunate enough to do a ton of commentating of matches. Those matches, little look behind the glass again, happen to be commentated remotely when you're working for Tennis Channel. You got to be on the grounds. You got to be in the press room. Give me some press interaction that stuck, uh, stood out to you. And then more broadly, what were you able to pick up perhaps by being in person that you just aren't from afar? All right. Well, I got to ask Alcaraz a question. Very I... good one. That one was a fun one. Of the list of things you tweeted out, that was <laughs> the one I was like, I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was kind of a, a goal of mine going in. I'm like, all right. This Carlos Alcaraz thing is happening. I I have, you know, this is a question that takes, you know, a couple of years of watching him to formulate. Uh, it was, you know, what I was really curious about was how he approaches his his game and his style. And, you know, I, I was excited for, for that. And there were other press conference moments that that I really enjoyed. But at the same time, like the answer to your question of like, what could you get out of being on the grounds? Uh, was probably, well, not as much as maybe you would like in terms of, you know, advantages uh, to, to what I normally do. And I, I got into that on the vlog, which is that, you know, one thing, first of all, at the Miami Open, your press seats are not a better vantage point than you get on TV. <laughs> now, I know for a fact that if you are at Wimbledon, for example, great press section right behind the baseline, they treat you well. But that's not the case at all tournaments. And as a result, a lot of... Uh, people who are covering the tournament, which your viewers might be interested to know, uh, all around, you know, all, tennis tournaments all around the world, a lot of media is sitting in a workroom watching on a screen, just like you are at home. And the technology at that workstation can differ from tournament to tournament as well. Um, you know, there's also a lot of stories going around about Indian Wells and how they restricted certain areas that used to be open to the media. Uh, where where journalists were no longer able to go. Uh, and and at the Miami Open, it, it's another tournament, and I don't think this is uncommon, so I'm not really criticizing the tournament. This is just how it is. Uh, th the only place you can really interact with coaches and players is in the press conference room. Like, that is it. Uh, for interview For all other interviews, players who don't get press conferences, you need to request them. I would have loved to just walk on in there, and it's like, oh, uh, Spanish media wanted to talk to Roberto Carballas Baena, and I'm just walking by, so I'll pop in and ask him a question. It's not like that, unfortunately. It would be kind of nice if it was. Uh, but ultimately, the biggest thing I got out of it was just enjoying it. As far as, like, was my 
Was I able to produce some incredible coverage and gain insights that I can't gain at home? Not really. It was just about friends, family, tennis in person, the environment, the food, the weather, and and having a good time. So it's a little inside baseball, this start of the conversation, and I promise folks we're going to get to Sinner Alcaraz, but you bring up a couple of excellent points. A, there is some gatekeeping that goes on in terms of access to these players. And while it is nice to be on the grounds, particularly once you start to build some relationships, then things do become a little bit easier in the sense that players will try to make themselves available to you, or should you request them via the ATP WTA, if they know you, they'll be more inclined to say, oh yeah, I'm happy to do that interview. It is nice to be in person. It is nice to, you know, again, even if it's one question to Alcaraz, just to hear his thoughts, hear how he responds and see how he thinks and processes questions and information. And, you know, you got to keep in mind, this is a guy whose English is not the most developed so far. And yet every time I see him in the press conference, every time I see him in the post-match interview, he gets better and better with each passing sentence. The other point I would turn to that I think you bring up that is fascinating, and this is something I have always wrestled with. With all due respect to in-person tennis, like it, it is exceptional. The athleticism is breathtaking. It's remarkable. When I watch a men's match in person, I leave thinking, yeah, I have no f- clue how either of these guys won this match. Like you just, you're just like you're both so good. And from an entertainment perspective, you're absolutely right. Like it's so compelling. You got to go watch in-person tennis. From an analysis perspective, I'm like, can I get some depth on my camera so I can sort of slow things down and kind of see like, oh, your backhand's struggling a little bit, or oh, your racket speed's not as breathtaking as it seems in person. Like, it really is hard to analyze when you're there. Yeah, especially, look, I can't analyze tennis when I'm watching it from the side angle, which is literally (laughs) 50% of the entire stadium i mean depending on the setup is watching from the side and by the way the speed is really cool like watching tennis from the side is fine but in order to actually kind of see what's going on do you kind of need to be behind the baseline Eh, i think so some scholars Uh, are arguing yes (laughs) (laughs) um and then the other thing is uh is instant replays which it helps you just process what happened I'm a proponent of instant replays between the point. I'd I'd much rather watch that than constantly, you know, cut to the coach, cut to the fan, you know, watch them towel off. No, like, give me a replay here. That's my little thing. Uh, And in person, depending on the venue, you're not even getting replays. And that requires a lot of focus. Like, you need to actually absorb every point because how many times, I know with your ADD, you definitely do it all the time. You're like, oh, I missed that. And then you catch it on the replay. Well, true. I would also say it's not that I don't catch the replay or I miss the point. It's that I am – disorganized is the wrong word. I am ADD enough um, to be like, well, I want to see how the player reacts. Is he going to swear at his coach? Like is the coach going to yell at them? Like I enjoy the coach shots, the player shots. I could do without a single fan shot the entire – unless it's like Luka Doncic because <laughs> I'm always down to see the celebrities in yeah, the crowd yeah. or like Steve Nash or Dirk because real recognizes real. But 
Yeah, people don't talk enough about how hard it is to analyze in-person tennis. Like, it is brutal. Um, But it is that much more entertaining. Certainly, the energy, it feels like, in Miami was pretty fun as well. You got a taste for all of that. But, of course, all of us got a taste of the rivalry that you and I have long said we think may define the next decade and a half on the ATP Tour. And you can go back, check the film. We're, what, a year and a half, two years into our your team, Alcaraz, because you like the easy way out. I'm team center because I like a challenge in life in this rivalry <laughs> uh, for us moving forward. And, you know, did I get angry at your challenger erasure and send you a personal text as opposed to calling you out on Twitter? Because that's what real friends do when you say this was Alcaraz Sinner part six. Yeah, I got frustrated enough to bring it up again here on the podcast. It's part seven. Challengers count. We're not going to dismiss that match, but Ugh. certainly now we're starting to get a catalog of high-level uh, event matches occurring between these two, and it feels particularly more pronounced right now given we just saw Sinner and Alcaraz go back-to-back in semifinals of this Sunshine Swing. Alcaraz obviously winning the Indian Wells encounter. Uh, Sinner taking their battle in Miami yesterday in three sets. We saw them play at the U.S. Open. Sinner has match points. Alcaraz goes on to win the event. We saw them play at Wimbledon. Sinner gets the win there, has a two-sets-to-love lead on Djokovic before that goes away. You look at the ELO ratings right now, you know, Alcaraz, Sinner, two of the top four players, whether you want to look at overall ELO, whether you want to look at 2023-specific ELO. We'll get to more of the accolades as we go throughout the conversation. The point I'm trying to make here is clearly this matchup matters moving forward. And I suppose more broadly, and it's something we've discussed before, but this is where we'll start It feels as though tennis has come to grips with the gravity of these matches, right? Like, it just feels like they are now maybe one of three, like, must-watch matches, regardless of if it's men's or women's tennis. If you're a tennis fan, you see these two playing, you clear the schedule now, right? Totally. I I don't know if... I don't know if the outside world is there. I don't think it's gone mainstream. I think like when Caitlin Clark is in the the final four draining threes, I don't think anybody's changing the channel who's just a general sports fan to catch Sinner and Alcaraz on Tennis Channel. But I think tennis fans are 100% in on this. They get that they are going to see the highest level possible of tennis when Alcaraz and Sinner take the court these days. And the, the head-to-head has just had that that intrigue and that mystery level. I will erase the challenger. I I like (laughs) taking challengers into account when we don't have a good, as you, I'll use your word, catalog of tour level matches to deal with. But uh, are we going to be like, oh, well, it's Alcaraz, if it's like Nadal Alcaraz or Nadal Djokovic, the head to head is now 18 to 21 and then this is going to be in 2030 and you're and i'm going to be on your podcast and you're going to be like no it's 29 to 31 like that is ridiculous (laughs) okay we're not going to do that disagree Uh, but carry on (laughs) (laughs) um you know it's been really kind of unpredictable and this is this is center ending a run of two matches two big matches in a row by carlos alcaraz and There's so much to talk about. What do you want to talk about first? Well, there's a lot of different places we could start with this one. And in case you didn't have the chance to catch it, Carlos Alcaraz knocked out by Yannick Sinner 6-7, 6-4, 6-2 last night. 
I know you did a long breakdown for Monday Match Analysis or your Gil Gross YouTube channel. I don't know if it's formally an MAA, uh, MMA episode. You make fun of our cataloging of podcasts here, and yet <laughs> Captain Unclear on the other side of the mic there. Um, let's just start with the first set more broadly because of the three sets, certainly that felt like the one where both players were closest to playing their best tennis. And I do think, again, 30,000-foot view, <laughs> when they run up the 25-plus matches that inevitably these two are going to play, and for what it's worth now, Alcaraz is tied with Tsitsipas for the opponent. Yannick Sinner has faced the most in his career. Sinner mm. is the opponent. Carlos Alcaraz has now faced the most in his career. That, of course, is assuming you don't do what Gil Gross does and, you know, challenge your erasure here. But with their seven matches, he's number one now for Alcaraz. Clearly, again, I think when we look back at the catalog in terms of highest level sustained, this will not be a match that is at the top of the list. But the first set was really good. And I do wonder, for those that didn't watch, Sinner races out to a break lead. He's up 4-1, 15-30. God, he had an overhead to go up 15-40 there. And you feel like if he gets that 4-1 lead, there's a world where he would have run away with this match in straight sets. His aggression is where I want to start. Because he came out guns blazing. And he held his ground on the baseline on the return. He took his opportunities whenever possible to redirect backhand down the line. He went at the Carlos Alcaraz forehand. Did he unlock something in the playbook moving forward, Gil Gross? Or is that just something Yannick Sinner, and I use this word uh, with, with all of its connotations, is it something Yannick Sinner is uniquely positioned to do against Alcaraz? The way I was going to answer your question is it unlocks something for Yannick. It (laughs) doesn't unlock much for anybody else. I mean, the depth, the pace, and the time that Sinner takes away, like those three things in combination all equate to how much time you have on the other side of the net. And Sinner takes away your time as well as anybody. And he uses those attributes to just kind of suffocate, suffocate Alcaraz and take away what he wants to do, which is be in control. I, it just felt like Sinner's power, which, by the way, started from the first shot on the return of serve, because it's easy to use your power behind your serve. You're going to land big first serves and obviously have a good look to rip a plus one ball. We, we all know that part of the equation. But with the way Sinner was even returning serve with the pace he was able to get on his returns, which was just routinely uh, in the upper echelon, he was not giving Alcaraz much time to do what Alcaraz wants to do. And there are some players who are pretty comfortable getting constantly attacked with pace. I think Djokovic is comfortable with that. I think Medvedev, Zverev is pretty comfortable with that. Alcaraz actually isn't there. He's not like pace-absorbing counterpuncher. That's not his game. And Sinner makes him play that game far too often with just the speed that he's playing at like did it look to you like Alcaraz was a little bit uncomfortable with just the speed that this match was being played at not that he couldn't hang in there because obviously he did in the set that we're talking about the first set Alcaraz actually won we can get into reasons why but in general the reason why Sinner is able to hang with him so well to me comes down to literally the speed at which the match is being played there's two things I think a and I alluded to it already 
I have never seen someone hold the ground on the baseline so well on the return of serve against Alcaraz as Sinner did last night. And clearly that's something they talked about in the pre-match discussion, Sinner and his coaching staff, is, hey, you can't seed ground and you use the key word. You just can't give Carlos Alcaraz time because there's nothing more dangerous in tennis right now than Carlos Alcaraz with time behind a first forehand, ideally on that ad side of the court. Because if he's there, again, sorry for swearing, you're just because he's going to go inside in, he's going to go inside out, or you're so paralyzed seven feet behind the baseline that all he has to do is make the drop shot. And usually he does, and usually it's exceptional as well, and he just wins the point. And Yannick Sinner clearly said, yeah, we're not going to do that here tonight. I'm holding my ground And that was part one. But part two, and this gets to, I think, something more broadly for Sinner. Oh, you have something on part one? No, no. Okay, yeah. I I saw you make a breath there. So I was like, he's winding up. He's ready. (laughs) Um, But part two, and again, this is something I've harped on forever. And this is why I've always been Team Yannick Sinner. Because, look, some scholars are arguing every human has eyes. And tennis is very much a sport where you can use your eyes and you can see this guy's got it. This guy doesn't. From the moment Yannick Sinner walked onto the Challenger Tour, the ATP Tour, he has had that overwhelming power that you just can't duplicate. You know, it's one of those, he's got one of those God-given shoulders, one of those God-given contact points that just work. The question has always been physically. When will, will he be a guy who is going to be able to hold up through the rigors of a two-and-a-half-hour, three-and-a-half-hour, best-of-five-set marathon? Can he do it over the course of not just three days, but five days, seven days, 10, 14 to, uh, in these longer events? He's still just 21 years old. And the thing when I watch him now that's different than even a year ago is that he is on ice skates in the corners now, Gil Gross. And you talked about his ability to generate depth, to generate depth with pace, to take time away from Carlos Alcaraz. He was doing it in the corners as well. Like, he dominated Alcaraz backhand to backhand yesterday. And I actually think Carlos Alcaraz, his backhand has maybe been the think he's improved most here in 2023. He is driving that ball with better depth than he did last season. Not against Sinner last night, because Sinner was lacing that ball at his feet. Then Sinner was not afraid to, again, take that backhand down the line, play with depth to the Alcaraz forehand. And it's that whenever he got his hands on the ball, that depth was able to be generated. That, to me, speaks to the physical development. I just, I don't, you know, Sinner has always gotten springier, but he is now sliding. Like, again, like, it's his job. Like, it's incredible. Yeah, his movement. Well, first of all, in the offseason, the main thing was the physical stuff. By yeah. all accounts, that was the focus. And that's what we wanted to be the focus, not just so that he can move better, but also so that he can stay healthy, which uh, ever since the first tournament of the year where he had a little bit of an issue in Adelaide, he has been able to do. I almost tweeted this. And I didn't because Twitter can't handle nuance, but (laughs) I almost said like Sinner winning this match on Alcaraz loss of fitness was not in my range of outcomes. That was not on my bingo card. That's the biggest like preach, bro. This is why you got the invitation, despite the fact that you were recording a show (laughs) on it anyways. This is why it's like, I'm going to make him talk twice because you are so correct. Carry on. 
Look, I think there's two sides to it. Was it weird that Alcaraz started cramping in the third set? I, I think that is weird. I don't understand it, and there's a lot of stuff that you and I both know. There's a lot of stuff that happens off the court for a tennis player. How'd you sleep? How'd you eat? What's going on in the personal life? A lot of different factors that can affect how you arrive on court for each match. And as a player, as you grow more and more professional, you hope to get those things right. You hope to get it consistent. Maybe Carlitos didn't get it right last night. I don't know, uh, but just giving, given his track record, I mean, we've seen him do some of the craziest stuff as far as endurance is concerned in the history of the sport, especially the U.S. Open. That's mm-hmm. at the top of the list, but the list is even longer than that. So it's weird that he cramped in the third set. But at the same time, we're talking about 70% humidity. We're talking about 80 degrees. We're talking about the uh, a match that, from an intensity standpoint of the points itself, was ratcheted up to a 10. We're talking about a match where the scoreboard was close the entire time, and that stress comes into play. So the physicality, it, it was high, 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 high-level stuff, and center looked fresh as a daisy from start to finish, which is significant. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think that's one of the biggest takeaways is that Yannick – who, by the way, you know, there can be a line of thought that, well, Sinner won the Sunshine, uh, Sinner, Alcaraz won the Indian Wells, and, you know, this was match number, what, 13, or not 13, 11 for him in the past three weeks. Okay, it was match number 10 for Sinner in that stretch of time. And again, to your point, this is the first time you look at, who you know, because Sinner beats Alcaraz and Umag, and actually, the story wasn't entirely dissimilar. You could tell Alcaraz just kind of went away physically in the third set, much like he did tonight against Sinner. You know, again, same deal. Sinner gets him at Wimbledon, but then, of course, Alcaraz comes back from match point down, wins the five-setter at the U.S. Open. And then, to your point, what he does against Tiafa, what he does against Rude the next two days, it was just a, you know, a, a testament to his physicality, to what he brings to the table match in, match out. He didn't have it last night. And that's actually, you know, to to flip it and glass half full, it was very clear Alcaraz didn't have it last night. Like, it was just sloppy. He was trying to hit through things and just, you're absolutely right. He's not a guy. We've talked about this before. When you look at Carlos Alcaraz, his plan A is as good as any plan A we've seen in tennis history. And for a 19-year-old to be able to execute on his terms the way that he does, again, I have pontificated, is it the best tennis I've ever seen played? No. Is it in the conversation already? Absolutely. He has plan A. As physically gifted as he is, as simple as it is to just say aloud, oh, he could grind six feet from behind the baseline if he wanted to, right? He kind of can't do that yet. At the level, clearly, he feels comfortable doing it. Like, if it's a ridiculous improvisation, diving, on the run, forehand pass, that he's got down lock. But, like, the basic counterpunching, you're right. Like, he's kind of not comfortable doing that yet, which makes him winning the first set. Like, how did he come back in that first set? <laughs> it, it felt like a bit of a steal. I mean— yeah. Look, I, I would say on center's end, uh, a lot of that crazy defense you're talking about, those winning points from behind, winning points that you have no business winning, I, I do think we saw quite a bit of that for Alcaraz. And part of that is center's finishing, which yeah. is probably my main critique of what is otherwise an unbelievable f- performance from Yannick is just uh, I feel like he leaves a couple points on the table every match 
that because he's just missing a volley, in this case, missing an overhead in the first set. That I that had was 11 crucial. approach shots missed, which is like, yeah, you can't miss that many. Like the slice is wider. He'll have a forehand look and he'll just guide it a little long. Like you're right. That ball because he plays so big on that shot. Yeah. And I just I almost feel like he's one of those players and this isn't that uncommon. He's more comfortable ripping a forehand 100% power a couple feet behind the baseline than he is stepping inside the court. You got to take a little pace off. Mm -hmm. It it becomes about the precision. You need to put it in the corner and you need to finish a volley. Alcaraz is great in the forecourt. Center is not really there yet. I thought that was a big reason why. Uh, We had that in the tie break. If we want to talk about why Alcaraz won the first set. Uh, From up 4-3, a mini break in the tie break, Center hit a horrendous drop shot, which is another example of what we're talking about. Just just the finishing, being clinical when it's time to finish. Horrendous drop shot, unbelievable defensive lob by Alcaraz. I can't believe he he hit such a good defensive lob uh, at four all, and center missed the next forehand. Uh, and then Alcaraz came up with a, a couple of really good serves. Mm-hmm. Now, well said. You're right. When Alcaraz, Alcaraz still found moments to be comfortable in this match, let the record show. Like when he could land one of his exceptional first serves, and I thought in particular his slice out wide on the deuce side. He did it against Fritz a bunch. He did it against Sinner as well. Yeah, it's you been know, good. Yeah, he won two thirds of his first serve points. The problem was he only made fifty five percent of his first serves, and you could see he did lose his legs in the third set, but. To kind of put the bow on this, you talk about the the center finishing skills. It was sloppy for the first set and a half. Then it wasn't. And like credit to center, races out to a break lead in the second set, hands that break back right away, right? All of a sudden it's two all. But then he begins to extend, you know, again, keeps himself in the fight. Much like when he gave up that first set break, how does he bounce back? Immediately holds in his next game. He kept the pressure on Carlos Alcaraz. And then I thought... Well, let's just have the volley discussion from a 30,000-foot view. Do you think Yannick Sinner's a good volleyer? No, average. I don't know if I agree. I think he knows where to go. I think he knows what to do. I think he has become more willing in his desire to move forward. And here's the thing I think I like most about Yannick Sinner. Every time it's clear he needs to develop a new skill, he has gone about it in his career developing it. And it's like, you know, we talk about the match— Took us 30 minutes to get here. Shout out to us. Vienna, <laughs> he loses to Tiafo. Tiafo beats him on emotion, on energy, on engaging the crowd. What does Sinner do over the next six months? Sometimes in a manufactured fashion, but he works on engaging crowds. He works on yep. energy and making sure I'm never losing a match in that fashion again. Last year, there were some physical woes and, you know, quarterfinals, semifinals. He's playing the best guys in the biggest stages. He couldn't get over the hump there. What does he do this offseason? Starts to get things together physically. Now he plays matches on ice skates. I think I see the skill set for him to be a good volleyer. I think he knows where to go. He knows what to do. He's just not great at it yet, but I've seen him executed enough where it's like, this isn't a Taylor Fritz situation where it's yeah. just like, this ain't ever going to work. Like, <sighs> I think he will be good, but that's fair to say he's average now. Yeah, dude, I'm a, I'm 100% with you. This is not, he's not Rublev. Yeah. He's not Medvedev. He's not Fritz. I mean, the difference between him and, and those guys, and maybe there's some differences in natural ability and deeply ingrained technical habits that maybe some of those sure. guys uh, are having trouble shaking. 
But I totally see a much stronger will on the part of Yannick Sinner, at least as a young player. Maybe Fritz is there now, but it really did take him a long time. Uh, there's a will for him to become a good volleyer. And that that might be half the battle in in modern men's tennis. Maybe it didn't always used to be that way, but there are a large portion of, of players. They're just not that focused on it because they feel like there's other things that come into play on a far more regular basis that they still need to develop. But the, the one thing you left out of that, no, it's I a great left point about one. center. I like it. You left out the serve. I mean, the serve mm. is completely retooled. Mm. The technique looks nothing like it used to look uh, when he first came on tour. The willingness that he's had to tinker, tinker, tinker with the serve is very, very big three-like. And Federer really wasn't a part of this, but Djokovic and Nadal, who, who the serve did not come naturally to, throughout their entire careers, they have had to play with their serves to get it to the level that they want. Yannick is already doing that. He already has done that. The first serve is so much better now. And that's been a big part of things too. And if we're going to relate it to this match, uh, he actually had a good serving day here yeah. versus at Indian Wells. I think the one thing that you could look at with Sinner and and give him a pass with the Indian Wells result is, well, you just had that that one out of 10 day where you just can't serve. Mm -hmm. And you knew that that wasn't going to happen again. Mm -hmm. And it didn't. Yeah. No, Sinner in the, in the Indian Wells match made 50% of his first serves. Last night, 63.5%. Sometimes it is just as simple as put more first serves in play and you're probably going to have more success. And you know my favorite stat on Tennis Abstract, right? I've shared this with you before. It's the fact that in every season she's played on the WTA Tour, Maria Sakkari's hold percentage has improved by at least 0.1%. And she's done it for eight consecutive seasons. Like, Dude, you, can't, you, can, you can take the 0.1% out of No, out of it's that, not right? just 0.1. It's more than that. I'm saying— No, but no, like no. She, I'm, saying, I'm saying if it improved by less than 0.1, what, what would we be talking about? Improved by look, like 0.0-something? I, I could have just said improved, but I wanted to display that that's what math looks like like folks like it's you add at least 0.1 that's improvement that's how it works all right i'm trying to teach a lesson here in mathematics um shout out to addition yannick sinner in his first five seasons of hold uh, of hold percentage in his first five seasons on the atp tour hold percentage started at 77.2 went to 80.3 81 in 2021 83.4 last year through 20 plus matches this season 86.9. So five consecutive seasons of improvement. And it gets back to the theme of like, and this is where I suppose we can end the discussion. How significant is this win for Yannick Sinner? Because now I get to introduce the tennis abstract numbers. You knew it was coming. Sinner, 52 and 17 overall over his last 52 weeks. It's a 75% win percentage. That is going to keep you climbing up the rankings. Of course, he's up to a new career high, number nine in the live rankings. If you included Wimbledon quarterfinal points, he would be clearly inside that top eight of the conversation. You look for Sinner now, you know, you want to go even more broadly. Since the start of August 2020, when play was resumed in this pandemic era, he's 133 and 49. So he's won 73% of his matches for two and a half years. He's not even 22 years old yet. 
You want to just go since the start of last season. Yannick Sinner, 68-20 and 20 overall. He's played 22 different events, Gil. He's made at least the quarterfinals in 15 of those 22 events since the start of last season. Wow. Like, at a certain point, it's like, what the f*** are you doing here? Like, this guy, in my opinion, and I've said it before, I'll say it again. You know how I like to define the tiers moving forward. You're a tier one guy. If I think I can guarantee by the end of this decade, you will have at least one slam title. There's no doubt Yannick Sinner's a tier one guy for me. Do you think a win like this? Like, again, is a semifinal victory enough for the tennis population at large to say, yeah, we can we can have him there now, or will there still be some sinner reluctance? Where are no. you with Yannick after all of this? It's not enough. It's not enough. He needs to he needs to beat Medvedev. And he then, has to beat him tomorrow. Yeah, he does. He does because Gruskin like he, you're wrong, but tell me why he doesn't have a big title yet in his yeah. career. So his 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 best title is a 500. It was it was DC, yeah. um, and. You know he's he's got to get one. That that's all. And and I was doing this the other day because this is actually how I led my Sinner Alcaraz analysis. I just wanted to throw this out there that because he's so good against Alcaraz and because he matches up so well, he plays him so well. It's a it's as competitive a head to head as you can possibly have. And Alcaraz is the world number one. And because of that, Sinner is probably propped up from a perception view. A, a little a little high next to Alcaraz as if they're equals but then when you look at the numbers they are not equals Alcaraz has four big titles Sinner doesn't have any right and w- what are some others uh well, top 10 records so so that's it you nailed it right there there are two things that separate Carlos out because I did this same segment see great minds think like Gil this is why we always enjoy working well I, I won't I won't impose <laughs> my views on you yourself. yeah exactly um because I did this segment of, well, what has Alcaraz looked like in comparison to Sinner since the start of last season, right? Because I think it's fair to say at the start of last year, both of them were at pretty similar spots in their trajectory. Yeah. I mentioned the, the Yannick Sinner numbers. Again, he's been really good. 68 and 20 overall, 77% win percentage. Alcaraz, very similar sample size of matches. They're both right around 90. He's 75 and 15. So he's won 83% of his matches. You're right. He's a little bit better. He has the bigger titles, obviously, the U.S. Open, which went through Sinner. The biggest difference, as you alluded to, Yannick Sinner against the top 20, 8-13 and 13 since the start of last season. Carlos Alcaraz against the top 20, 24-11 and 11 since the start of last season. So guess, like... It's not an unfair point to make. I rescind the you're wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> you're just not right in the sense that, like, I don't know, it's Andy Murray syndrome. Like, I've just never been more certain since Murray. <laughs> That's not true because I was just as certain about Zverev, but we're going to put that to the side for now. I am this confident. Like, I just, he's going to get it. He's done everything but. Yeah, no, he's definitely going to get it. I I can't you argue with you it. there. Look, uh, I picked him to win Indian Wells. Okay. I said it's time to jump on the center train, mm. and I was a couple weeks early. And then for this event, I I felt like – I kind of felt like an idiot because I picked 
basically the same thing to happen. I, I said Alcaraz over Sinner, Medved, uh, Alcaraz over Medvedev. And that's how I think the end of the tournament will, will go and Alcaraz will, will win the Sunshine Double. Uh, part of it was if I picked Sinner over Alcaraz again, it would be three times in a row. And if I went 0 for 3 picking Sinner over Alcaraz because I did that at the U.S. Open, I would just, I, I can't do that. So I'm, a lot of people call me biased. I am biased by my previous picks. That is something I am biased by. So I could not go three in a row picking <laughs> Sinner over Alcaraz and going 0 for 3. I just, I wouldn't be able to deal with that. So I have no regrets. But, but yeah, basically I'm with you. And you know what? Here's what I'll say. 2022, sorry, 2023 Sinner and 2022 Sinner. I believe those are pretty different players. Like I, I do okay. think Sinner has made a jump. And that's why when we are looking at these statistics from a standpoint of including 2022, or in my case, including the entire career, I actually do think we're doing Yannick a disservice mm-hmm. no, because he, he is on a, a different tract of development. I think especially physically, he he's slower moving than Carlitos and he could get there. He could become equals. I still think right now they're not equals because Alcaraz is better against the field and we can't let the way their head to head looks, the way it looks when they share a tennis court, we can't let that cloud our view of how they are against the field. Oh, I, th- I agree with you, Gil. I think this is just a classic case of tortoise versus the hare. Like, I think that's going to be the narrative that defines the tour over the course of the next <laughs> decade. That, that's a bit Gil and I are working on that's not ready for release, but we'll we'll keep that in, and that's what we call a tease in our business. Uh, very well said. Unless you're ready for the bit to go, Gil. Do you have a response? Let's let's hold off. Yeah, we'll hold it off for now. Um, yeah, I I think that's well said, and that's why I wanted to include the context of the improvement over five years because you're right. Sometimes it's been incremental, but he has in Yannick Sinner continued to improve. And you know, again, it's his second career Miami Open final. He's going to take on Daniil Medvedev. He's 0-5 in his career against Medvedev. You look at the matches, you know, three of them have gone three sets. Rotterdam final earlier this year, Medvedev 5-7-6-2-6-2. Medvedev got him at the tour final 7-6 in the third back in 2021. Also wins in Marseille in 2020-2021. All their matches have come on hard courts. Obviously, you look for Daniel Medvedev. He's won what, like 21 of 22, 22 of 23. He's won a lot throughout the course of this year. And now he's, you know, the list of guys who have made every major hard court final, which means the two major events plus all the Masters 1000s. Here are the five players who have done it since 2000. And I apologize for not crediting the guy who tweeted it out, but shout out to that guy. Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, Medvedev. That's your list of five. That's a hell of a list to be on. Let me just say, if you're talking about players since 2000 for Daniil Medvedev, for him to, again, have accomplished another significant final in his career, what is it about Medvedev that makes Sinner uncomfortable, in your opinion, Gil, and how do you see this match unfolding? Well, it's the opposite of the Alcaraz thing, where Sinner's linear pace is a really good asset against Carlos Alcaraz. It rushes his forehand. It keeps him on the back foot. Alcaraz just isn't that great a pace absorber at this time. 
Medvedev is, you know, Rublev, my favorite thing that anyone's ever said about Medvedev came from someone who's been playing him since they were seven years old, which is Andre Rublev. And Rublev said, you can't rush Daniil Medvedev. It's just not a way to beat him. You can't hit it so hard and deep and fast through the middle of the court that Medvedev is going to miss. It doesn't really happen. And that's very unique to Medvedev because usually like how hard you hit the ball actually matters. <laughs> yeah, some, you know, people don't talk enough about how hitting the bar, how much that matters. <laughs> yeah, but it just matters less against Medvedev. And I yeah. think that's what bo- has bothered Sinner. I think he also made two mistakes when they played in Rotterdam. Way too many cross-court backhands. He needs to go down the line with his backhand because, you know, that just it was just backhand to backhand and Medvedev's is more consistent. That's what happened in Rotterdam. And then the other thing uh, is Sinner does need to come forward, which he did well in the first set in Rotterdam, and then he completely got away from it in the second and the third set. You, you need to move forward in order to finish against Neil. Otherwise, his defense is going to drive you crazy, and he's going to steal a lot of points from uh, defensive positions. Yeah, I... I... It's so fascinating that we spent some time talking about Yannick Sinner struggling to finish at the start of that Alcaraz match, finding his rhythm as that match progressed. He'll need it from the start against Medvedev. It's going to be the ultimate stress test. How comfortable is Yannick Sinner moving forward? How comfortable is he? You know, I actually liked, you talked about the bad drop shots he hit in the breaker in the first set against Alcaraz. I thought he hit some really good ones in the second and third sets. And yes, Alcaraz's movement was compromised. But Sinner recognized that fact and took advantage of the court positioning. He has to do that same thing, has to throw off-speed, off-rhythm, court-stretching balls at Daniil Medvedev. You're right. It can't just be linear down the line or down the center depth pace. That's not what disrupts Daniil Medvedev. I will say the service, uh, the returning position, excuse me, for Sinner— I think he carries that over, right? Like, if you're facing Daniil Medvedev, I actually thought Hatchinov did this pretty well also. Depth to the forehand. Like, if you can yeah. rush Daniil Medvedev's forehand early, now you get an easier short ball to unload that first forehand with. The thing is, Daniil Medvedev's 6'6", and he's throwing 130 bombs at you. Like, that's the thing I'm watching for. Yeah, the depth of the forehand, like, I do think that that's better than going to the yeah. backhand with depth, where I think the pace absorption is, is even at a, at another yeah. level. It's yeah. it's ridiculous. Uh, now, I don't think you get misses out of the forehand by going, you know, deep middle at it, uh, but I think you do get attackable balls from that pattern. Then you have to go finish. Uh, but I think the point you're making about the returning, that's super significant, really significant, because that's been Medvedev's, uh, weakest part of his game throughout the Miami Open has been his second serve. And uh, I, I think Sinner is going to take rips on his second serve return, and he does it really, really well. And by the way, the only reason this whole thing works when we're talking about Sinner is because he does it off of both wings, the forehand yes. and the backhand. If yes. there was a weaker side, yes, it just wouldn't work. Uh, Alcaraz would find it and just go from there. Like, oh, your forehand's really big and makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) I will just get it to your backhand. That's what would happen. But because Sinner can do the whole, you know, 80 mile per hour ground stroke thing off of both (laughs) wings, it it makes it feasible. Um, It's a salient point, my friend. That's a very, (laughs) very good point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're so So, right. Watch for that. Yeah. Watch for how he's attacking the second serve. The thing on the second serve return which is really good against Medvedev is, you know, Daniil 
can't be in great defensive position. He can't because he has to serve from the baseline. Yeah. And and that and that is a real bother when you're trying to finish against Medvedev in a rally. Uh-huh. He's so good at recognizing, oh, I'm going to have to defend. Let me drop back now. Uh, and he covers drop shots really well. <laughs> so yeah. it, it makes it tough to even do that. But when, when he's hitting a second serve, that's where you can get him. So I think Sinner, in order to win the match, needs to win at least 55% of his second serve return points. Mm, give me a number. You know I like that. Yeah, I, I would even venture to say 60. Like, Because you just know Medvedev's going to put the pressure on him in every yeah. other aspect. And you're right. Like You talked about the new mechanics of Yannick Sinner's serve. That toss is just so much further behind his head now. And it's going to be interesting. I don't know if kicks... like. Kick serves aren't necessarily the play against the Daniil Medvedev because he's so far behind the baseline. He's going to take that away from you. That said, Sinner hits a really nice slice wide on the deuce. Like, how frequently does he go to that well? How frequently is he... Because slice wide to the deuce, first strike to that wide lane of open court on the ad side, that's the pattern. And I think for Yannick Sinner, again, serving wide on both the ad and the deuce and just creating easy lanes of attack... They'll be there for him if he wants them. And that's just the question of, again, will he have the gumption to pull that pattern off repeatedly the way we saw Alcaraz just obliterate Medvedev with it in the Indian Wells final? You got to pick for me? You just got to get to the net when you do it. You know, you can't finish it. Are we going to see some uh, slice serve out wide forehand down the line winner? Are we going to see that a couple times? Yeah, but not nearly as much as we could potentially see slice serve out wide, forehand down the line, approach, volley finish. Like Sinner yeah. needs to use that that third shot from his perspective. It's not the it would be the sixth. No, fifth. it would be the fifth shot of the rally. Yeah. Uh Sinner needs to use that fifth shot well. And I think that fifth shot needs to come at net uh often. Yeah, uh, my pick. Well, I'll also say to that end. Sitter's got the overhead to pull it off too. Like he does not struggle. I know he missed the one I talked about earlier, yeah. but like that was in that was the exception, not the rule. I agree. I don't think Medvedev lobs all that much. He throws up the sky lob to buy time. Yeah. I, I just know. think that's like, an interesting. Uh, that's interesting. I need. I'll check the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> not a lot of topspin backhand lobs from Medvedev. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. You know, I, I, it's always the bump. It's not topspin. You're right. It's always the full bump. Right, right. Like if he's in desperation mode, he'll he'll throw it up. But if yeah. if he can hit a pass, he's hitting a pass. Yeah. Alcaraz is more of the topspin lob yeah. aficionado. I mean, Alcaraz hit his first drop shot topspin long combination at seven, and he was like, "Holy crap, what's this?" And he was like, <laughs> "I'm just like in." <laughs> um, it's, yeah. Uh, that was no, love it's at first incredible. sight. Yeah. Give me your pick. It's tough. I, I go I go Medvedev in three. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really, you know, it's the second serve stuff that I think will really favor Sinner. But ultimately, the baseline dynamic, I feel like it's a tough matchup for, for Yannick in that respect. So has, has Daniil Medvedev become underrated? No. <laughs> he probably... <laughs> okay, we could leave that there. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that I, I feel like... We're not know, talking the, enough the, about uh, he has been so good since no, the month I, of February. Like, I know, on. but that's the thing. But Grusky, did did you do the like Medvedev got disrespected bit 
Like no, when I didn't do the disrespected. I did good. the disrespecting. I straight there up disrespected him. And there like, you go. Yeah, I full on apology. Exactly, and I think that that is where I was at too. And I know that some people were just like the people. People wrote him off. It's like, well, he wasn't that good for a thirteen month period. Eighteen and seven, he was fine. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. It's like it. It's. It's not like everybody freaked out at a couple of weeks. Like it ha- it was going on for an entire year. So I don't think yeah. that anybody was unfair to Daniel, Daniel Medvedev. He lost in straight sets to Korda. It would be one thing if, if it was a competitive match, but it was straight sets. And then after that, like, yeah, I did have some concerns. Uh, and, and now he's gone absolutely crazy since then. So now we're kind of back to, okay, he is, he is in my opinion, uh, Overall, I think tier one in certain conditions, maybe tier two overall, if you're going to consider all conditions after Djokovic and Alcaraz. See, I put him tier one because I know he's going to be quarterfinals or further at every hard court, every grass court event. You have the a softer, you're always a softer tier one than me. Oh, the what? correct term is more accurate, but that's No, you're, you're a softer tier one. <laughs> you, you invite more people into the tier one party. What's and the point of hanging out in tier one if you're going to be a loner? That's no fun. Um, there's two. It's two. It's a twosome. Yeah, it's it's not. I mean, first of all, that's – well, that was going to be – so I have two questions left for you. Is it a clear-cut top four right now? Is it Djokovic, Alcaraz, Medvedev, Sinner? It's not clear-cut. No. Okay. No. We need to not overreact too much to so the last So you're saying it's a clear-cut two top months. two. And on hard courts, clear cut top three. Yeah, yeah, I, I would, I would venture to to go that far. Okay. Uh, Sinner, look, Sinner can get there, but again, we need more than two months yeah. of that. I, I always kind of try to require that. Uh, Pass is injured; he's yeah. playing completely injured. But before he was injured, he made the Australian Open final, and uh, now we're going to the clay. Uh, it's this is this is perilous for Titi Pass because this is a part of the year where he's usually done really really well, and if he can't hit a topspin backhand, that's a problem. Uh, <laughs> but I, I don't think he should be written off. I don't make anything of his losses because of course he's going to lose. He can't hit a backhand. I don't. You know, the we could get into a whole thing about why he's playing. It's too complicated, and we shouldn't talk about that. But that's really the conversation to be had about Tsitsipas is should he have played the Sunshine Double? Not let's dissect the losses. I completely agree with you there. I will say, and I brought this up to David Kane, it really it really grind grinded my gears is the wrong term. It hurt me internally to have to side against you. Because let me just say, if Oleg or at Anna K forever tweets something, it's law. And like Anna K was disagreeing with you about the rule interpretation or how it worked. And that speaks to how complicated it is. And I was like, damn, I have to side against Gil on this one. I was like, I'm team Anna K forever. I was like, I'm not going to go against what has always delivered the goods. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I will say, though. Tsitsipas ripping the backhand in the fashion that he did where it was just like, you know what? This is what I'm doing today. I wonder if there's anything to glean from that moving forward where it's just like, you know, it didn't not work like to just go Mach 12 on that backhand wing. And obviously it's not going to work 100% of the time. But I do wonder if he found a little something something because I didn't hate how he was hitting the backhand when he hit it. Yeah, I'm not with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, I, mean, I was like, do it, like rip. Well, yeah, I mean, look, it. I I think it got like flat as a pancake because yeah. be, 
Right, but I also think that he hit some a lot of backhands that were entirely too slow uh, because, you know, especially when it was rushed because he couldn't hit that regular kind of nice top spin yeah. drive. Uh, so I kind of get what you're saying. And then, and then look, a lot of one-handers could actually be okay if they were forced to slice a ton. Tsitsipas is not one of those guys. Like if you told Grigor Dimitrov, hey, buddy, you, you can't hit any tops from backhands, he might actually get better. He'd be like, darn. Like, oh, man, what a devastation. No, there's a guy, Elliot Spaziri, number one player in the nation for Texas right now, who for like 15 months didn't have a left wrist. And so all he had to do was hit backhand slice. And now his wrist is healing so he can hit through it a little bit more. And he goes, Alex, like – do you know how hard it is for me now? Like, if I if it's improvisation, if I'm on the run, my backhand's fine. He's like, if I have two feet set and I'm hitting a backhand with two hands, it's going to the back tarp. He's like, it's just off. He's like, you. It takes time I've been to refine that. <laughs> I know. Um, that's why when we had the center forehand approach conversation, I was like, Gil, what can I do differently? I was like, keep giving me like just a little technique tip here, uh, please. But. No, last question for you, just to flip gears, because obviously Medvedev, Alcaraz can be, uh, would be really fun if it was the match. But of course, it's Medvedev versus Sinner, which is going to be even more fun. As David Kane likes to call it, big babe tennis, Rabakana Kvitova, who you got in the women's final? Yeah, I think Rabakana is a is a more polished version of Kvitova. Um, in, in, in a lot of ways, but I, I think the biggest difference, honestly, other than uh, polish, is kind of a general word. Let, let sure. me be a little yeah. bit more specific. No, so no one dies on this podcast. This is the Twitter of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Rubakina, uh she she plays that game off of both wings, and Kvitova does it off of the forehand. She can't really do it as well off of the backhand. I think Rabakina has the biggest backhand in women's tennis. I think the best backhand in women's tennis is a pretty good debate. Uh, we can have a great debate about that, and I'm not really sure where I even land on that. But biggest backhand, I think, is a much easier question to answer, and it's Rabakina. And they're both... Um, you know, they're both going to serve big. I trust Rabakina to serve a little bit more. Uh, but ultimately, I feel like Rabakina with that cross-court forehand into the Kvitova backhand, that's going to be a terrific pattern for Elena. What's Petra's, what's Petra's pattern there? Like her forehand cross-court into Rabakina's backhand? Elena's going to handle that much better. So that's why I feel like we're going to see the power of kind of balance off of both wings play a big role in that women's final. It's so fascinating you bring that up because my thought was who's going to execute the line better? Kvitova forehand line to get Rabakina on the run on that forehand side or Rabakina going backhand line to get Kvitova stretched on that backhand wing? I just think you're right. Kvitova is the better uh, – excuse me. Rabakina is the better mover, the more fluid athlete at yeah. this point. I think she'll get better looks on the return of serve. And God, has she been hitting the return of serve well in Miami? It's also just like – I don't know. Her winning this sunshine swing doesn't feel weird. It feels like she's like she's put herself in this position to, again, fully put the exclamation point in this ascension, that final feather in the cap where it's like, all right, you are in the conversation now moving forward. You are one of the players everything runs through. It just feels like it's all set up for her, and I, I would agree. The wild thing is I think she might get more of a bump from this. in the tennis world for winning the Sunshine Double than she did Wimbledon. Well, I just think because it was so much more expected. Everyone was just so much more prepared for this run. The Wimbledon run, 
you know, no Ashley Barty. Iga, Iga was such the there was so much, you know, was the gravity sucking everything in around her? That was the story. Is the thirty-seven match win streak, and is Iga going to do it at Wimbledon as well? Despite the fact that she's played fewer than ten grass court matches in her career, and then it was like, nope, it's Elena Rybakina, and people just weren't ready for that. She went like, I think it was like, I don't know, something like. 18 or 19 and 7 down the home stretch of the season as well. And then, you know, for her to start this year 21 and 4, it's like, oh, okay, that Wimbledon run was real. So it's just like a, a nine month come to Jesus moment for the majority of tennis fans, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's not without logic. Yeah. It's still interesting. Like, it is. I think, and I, I think it says something about the Sunshine Double. Like, sure. if you can win. Indian Wells and Miami back to back. Like I feel like you have everybody's attention in a in, in a big way. Uh, arguably, just as just as big way now historically, the record books respect the major title way more than what the record books might you know respect as the Sunshine Double. Even though the list of players who have done it is a absolutely incredible list. Um, that being said, I think like. You're right. It's it's the craving of predictability on the women's side. Rabakina probably was a victim mm-hmm. of how many, you know, a victim of Sloan Stevens, a victim of Bianca Andreescu. Like, mm-hmm. I, I feel like these players who who win one slam, and I'm not saying that you know Andreescu could very well win more. Uh, Sloan, I'm not so sure. I don't think so. Uh, but because we've seen that a couple times. Um, on on the women's side, Rybakina wins one, and she maybe doesn't get the respect that it would if we didn't see that as often. Mm-hmm. No, I, but Sunshine think- Double, Sunshine Double, I think after the Wimbledon title, now we're starting to build up a body of results. I think that's the difference. You mean the, it's the uh, Breakpoint Double? That's because they're going to cover it hopefully uh, in this next series or in this next season of episodes. And yeah, I, I think are they going to the- cover Rybakina? <sighs> I don't know. Hopefully. I mean, right? They have to at this point. Yeah, I, I would like, like them to. I think they'll let the results dictate more who they're going to cover here in this next season. Or maybe they'll just take fan requests because they're looking for anything at this point. That's another podcast. Yeah, exactly. It's the one we do together, of course, as well. All right. Last two rapid fire questions for you here. A, pick one celebrity to be at a Gilgross match. Jamie Foxx, Ben Stiller, Luka Doncic, or the Nashnowitzki pairing. I need to pick one. Yeah, you pick one who you want in your crowd. Um, I would want Luca. Luca is of that crop. I think the most legendary, and then also Jamie Fox. That's so funny. But, you I know, go- I'm not a huge Jamie Fox. I'm, yeah. It's not that I'm a. It's not that I'm a non-fan. It's that like Jamie Fox Fox hasn't touched my life all that much. Well, you haven't watched a movie since what Rugrats Go to Paris, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, yeah, so that's fair. I say Novitsky Nash because like Steve Nash is in it. He loves tennis, and so does Dirk. So does and Dirk. I, yeah, I'm like, yo, you guys want to be part of my crew? Like, Steve. So does Jimmy you. Butler, man. How yeah. how many days did Jimmy Butler spend at the Miami Open? Yeah, my God. I, I mean, Doncic is down there for Dirk. First of all, three beers deep at least. Luka Doncic in that moment, you could just see he was like, "This is a good night." Like he, dude, I love it. He's so yeah. talented. He doesn't even need to stay in shape. No, it's, it's, it's like I'm gonna I'm gonna drink three beers at the Miami Open. Come in the next day and add to my 
MVP case. Yeah, if I'm commenting within a week, I don't drink because I'm like, I'll still be burping three Fridays from now. Um, yeah, all right, last question for you. Update, content, Miami home stretch, things winding down in this first third of the season. What can fans expect from you? Uh, well, I'm excited for this next Monday match analysis um, after the Medvedev versus Sinner final. It's going to be interesting to see, especially if Sinner wins. If Sinner wins, it's going to be a big uh, it's going to be a big Monday match analysis because it'll be really the first time where it's like, let's talk about Yannick Sinner winning a big title. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think that would be it would be really exciting. Obviously, if Medvedev wins, that'll be interesting as well. Tell you what, um, if, if and then, Sinner you know, wins the title, I was right. You were wrong. You know who's going to be sending a message in that group chat. I know. I know. There's going to be uh, it's you and Noah Eagle, by the way, <laughs> where I'm kind of on the hook with yeah. with Sinner's results. Not that I've ever been a naysayer. It's just yeah. <laughs> I've always been like, hey, Alcaraz is better. That's all. Alcaraz is a little better. What a bold take by you. <laughs> it was. I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Uh, anyway, we're going to do a mailbag as well, uh, where if I've said anything on this podcast that you would like to follow up with me about or yell at me about uh, mailbags, the place to do it community tab on the YouTube page, make sure you subscribe. You can also hit me up on Twitter and, uh, have a chance to get on the mailbag. Hey Gil, long time listener, first time caller. I'm just curious. Can we make the belly button a nipple cam? Maybe just like a little higher up on the body. I don't know. Whatever you're thinking. Yeah. Um, I'll meet you in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> Third rib. That's a, that's always a good place to start, but no, uh, obviously looking forward to seeing and hearing the mail back. Looking forward to seeing all the content coming from Monday Match Analysis, from 3 A Tennis Show, seeing you on Tennis Channel. Always a joy for me, and of course, always a pleasure to get the chance to chat. Shout out to you for joining us. Shout out, of course, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of any job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. Thank you to Stoff. Thank you, of course, as well, to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, for for the fantastic Gil Gross, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Gil, what do we tell our listeners? That's the break, baby. <laughs> Can I improvise that? That was good. Leave it in. And we'll see you all next time. Thank you, as always, my friend. Thanks, Grusky.